Thank you, Tom, for that. My name is Brody McLean. I'm the high school pastor here at Calvary. And because I'm a high school pastor, I get to take some freedoms that other pastors don't. And this morning, I'm going to take a couple of those freedoms. One, I'm going to hijack this pulpit for a few minutes and announce some high school events to you. And that is this. We have our winter camp coming up. We do a winter camp every year. It's coming up January 12th to the 15th. And I want to throw that out to all of you because most of you at least know high schoolers. And it's not restricted just to Calvary Bible Church high schoolers. We would love to have... Uh, people that you know, um, could be grandchildren, could be children, could be friends, go with us. We love taking those people to camp. It's a great experience for them. Great chance to really get inundated with the word and with Christ and with Christians for a whole weekend. So that's coming up January 12th to the 15th. And also we're going to be doing some fundraising for that, for the, for the students. The students are going to be coming around in a few weeks, looking for some of you to buy some pizzas from them. Now, don't shun them. Don't shoo them away. Simply purchase a pizza <laughs> and help them go to camp, okay? That's, that's the fundraiser we do. It's actually really neat. Not only do they get the money for selling the, for selling the pizza, but then we all fellowship together after church and eat pizza together. So uh, get, a, get in on that. It'll be a good, good thing. So uh, the other thing I'm going to do as a high school pastor uh, is this. You saw the sign coming in. I hope, or else you have it in your bulletin. The title of this morning's sermon is, What Do You Want? And one of the things I like to do in the high school group is I like to get you guys talking with each other. So I've never seen this before, except for first service, we did it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk with the people around you. Okay, one caveat, it cannot be a a relative. Okay, so you have to talk to somebody unrelated to you. And you have to ask them the question, what do you want? Okay, you got to ask them the question, what do you want? See what they say. Go back and forth a little bit, and I just uh, start talking about this subject. So I'll give you about one or two minutes to do that. Talk to the people around you. What do you want? Go. Okay, we can keep moving on now. It's too bad that this isn't high school group. If this was high school group, I get to hear your answers right now. You get to share with each other. I bet you there's some great comments out there. 
An interesting question. Interesting. I wish I could have heard some of the responses. It's just what different people said when you ask, what do you want? It, it, it kind of depends on how you ask that question. You can emphasize different things in that question and have an entirely different mood being presented to the person you're talking to. For instance, uh, it might be a little different if I asked the question this way. What do you want? Okay. Immediately you're on the defensive. Okay. Immediately without any change of the question. Or I could ask it this way. What do you want? I'm zapping you right there with that question. What do you want? Or I could emphasize something different. I, in frustration, I could say, what do you want? Or give a little attitude. What do you want? And any of those ways that I ask that question are going to give different responses. But none of those are the way that I want to approach that question this morning. The question this morning I want to pose to you sounds like this. What do you want? What do you desire? What do you treasure in life? What makes you tick? What gets you going? What fuels the fire of your passion? What do you want? And it's really such a huge question because what you want determines the course of your life. What you desire impacts everything you do. What you treasure affects every aspect of your being. So it's an important question. I don't know about you. I've asked myself these next couple questions before. Have you ever wondered why I can't beat sin? You ever wondered why certain sins just take you down time and time again? I'll tell you that the problem lies with your wants. Have you ever wondered what you're supposed to do in life? What are you supposed to be? Where's your life supposed to go? Well, the solution lies with your wants. Have you ever wondered why some people in life seem so close to God. They seem so personal, so close to God. Like they get it when it comes to God. You probably have a person in your head right now who's just so close to God. Have you ever wondered how they get there? Well, the answer lies with what you want. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter two. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter two. I'm going to continue to shake it up a little bit as the high school pastor. And we're going to do a whole chapter this morning. We're going to do a whole chapter. When when you are godly, when you are godly, you can preach an entire sermon on a verse. When you're super godly, You can preach a whole sermon on a word. And we're going to do a whole chapter this morning. (laughs) So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. This is the heart of the wisdom literature. Uh, If you're familiar with your Bibles, you can open up to different parts in the Bible and you're going to hit different types of literature. You open up to the beginning, you're going to hit the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You're going to get a little bit of history and then a lot of law. And it's going to read a certain way and you're going to interact with it a certain way. 
And that's totally different than when you approach the prophets and you get to the end of the Old Testament or those who have been doing the Daniel class. And it's just, it's a whole different type of literature and you read it a different way and you look at it a different way. And it means something a little bit different. Still God's truth, still literal, but you have to approach it in different ways. Well, this morning we're going to hit a section of literature that's poetry. This is the wisdom literature, and this is going to read like a poem. If you did some fun reading tonight, you pulled off your shelf a novel, you'd read that a certain way. And if you went up to your shelf again later on and pulled off a book of poems, well, you'd read that an entirely different way. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Proverbs. We're going to look at wisdom literature. If you were to read the law about sin, the law would say, sin is wrong and will be judged. When you read wisdom literature, it says sin is stupid. And let me show you a better way. So it's just kind of a different approach to the aspects of life. And in Proverbs, the emphasis is wisdom. And uh, Solomon, who wrote most of the Proverbs, is an appropriate man to write this. God gifted Solomon with more wisdom than any other man that's ever lived outside of Christ. And Solomon penned the Proverbs from this well of wisdom that he had, and he got the stamp of God's approval in what we have here in the scripture. In other words, there were things Solomon said that aren't in the scripture, but these things that we read this morning have been penned by the Holy Spirit working through Solomon. Well, what is wisdom? I think we know that wisdom is more than knowledge. It's not just data. It's not just, uh, I've got a degree in this, so I must be wise. There's something more to it. And I'll give you a few definitions. You can pick the one you like. Some have defined wisdom as the skill of being able to form and execute the correct plan to get the desired results. It's the skill to be able to develop a plan to get from point A to point B effectively. You know what point B is. You know how to avoid the pitfalls. You know what to do and you accomplish your goal. That's what wisdom is. It's applying theory to practice and real life situations. It's applying that which we know up here to effective practice in our lives. And when we come to Proverbs, we get wisdom wrapped up in these small little packages called Proverbs, small little statements. A lot of times in Proverbs, there's no context. Now that's not true with our text this morning, but many times when you read through the book of Proverbs, all you get is one little tiny nugget some fundamental truth about life wrapped up in a nutshell. These are truisms. These are, these are fundamental principles. They're, they're short and they're sweet and they, they relate to, to certain areas of life. Some are broader than others. And I really like what Charles Bridges says about the book of Proverbs. And I think this will give us a good foundation for this morning. What this invaluable book, the book of Proverbs, impresses upon our minds is this. The importance of deep-seated principles in the heart. The responsibility of conduct in every step of life. The danger of trifling deviations for expediency's sake. We're going to see that this morning. The values of self-discipline. The habit of bringing everything to the word of God. The duty of weighing in just balances a worldly and a heavenly portion. And thus deciding the momentous choice of an everlasting good before the toys of earth. These lessons thoroughly in rot will prove the best security against all attempts to loosen the hold of principle and to entice upon enchanted ground. This practical godliness 
So far from wearing a forbidding look or being an associate with gloom or sadness, cast a smile over a world of sorrow. Is a sunbeam of comfort in suffering and ever a principle of peace and steadfastness. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 2. And we're going to deal with one of the most important questions in life. What do you want? What do you really want? So let's look at Proverbs chapter 2 and read along with me. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. And discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Well, we're going to look at Proverbs 2 this morning. It's going to break up break out with our outline up here. It's one big conditional statement. One big if then statement. The first four verses give us the conditions. Give us the if. If you, and we're going to see what that is. The rest of the chapter breaks up the the results. Then you, and it's going to tell us what we receive if we keep Verses 1 to 4. So this is our outline this morning. I'm going to do things a little different. I'm going to start with the results. I'm going to kind of play the salesman this morning. Okay, I'm not going to tell you the price till the very end. Okay, we'll talk about the results first, all the great rewards, and then we'll hit verses 1 to 4 at the very end. So we're going to start with verse 5. Have I got an offer for you? Here we go. Verse 5. If you were to do verses 1 to 4 whatever that may be. We'll get to it. Then verse five, you will discern the fear of the Lord. About four years ago, I went to a Calvary Bible church pastor's retreat. It was down in San Diego. I was just an intern at the time. They invited me to go along and, and it was a, it was a great time to set vision and to just grow personally. And, and while I was down there, I started to realize some things about my life. I realized that I had all these areas of sin in my life. 
And as I really started to look at each one, I found out that they all kind of went back to the same source. And that source was my personal lack of fearing God. And it made sense to me. I said, boy, that points back to me not fearing God. And that does. And that certainly does. And what dawned on me was, boy, if I could get the fear of God, I would be able to work out in all these areas, all these sin areas. And I would left encouraged, but I left challenged too, because my problem was this. What in the world is the fear of God? You know what the fear of God is? How would you answer that? If someone came and said, what's the fear of God? Please tell me. I need to have it. I didn't know. I was in seminary at the time. I didn't know. I didn't know what the fear of God was. If I had to say, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? So what do I need to do? How do I need to be? I just was left with this blank. You think about fearing God and am I supposed to be scared? Is that what it means? Like, like a bully at school and take the other path and make sure I avoid that guy and bring some extra lunch money and pay him off at the time. I mean, is that what fearing God is? Is it being scared? Or I'd heard this extremely unhelpful definition. It's reverential awe. I said, oh, good. Now I got it. What, what do I do with that? What is that? Do I just kind of go, ah, you know, how do I fear God? I, I really wanted to know. And I was really struggling with some of these quick little definitions that were thrown at me. What is the fear of God? And, and as I started to read up on it, I realized this is a big deal. Not only will it help me in my life, but, but Solomon, wisest man to walk the earth outside of Christ, comes to the end of Ecclesiastes. And that famous verse, he has explored all the pleasures of this world. He has tried everything. And at the end of his life, he concludes with this. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. I thought, oh no, that's the conclusion. I don't even know what that is. But that is so important to fear God. Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9 says it's the beginning of wisdom. So I, I can't even get to knowledge and wisdom without the fear of God. It's a big deal. I read guys like John Murray who said that the fear of God is the soul the very soul of godliness. So I, I, I had to know this and I didn't. I, I didn't have a clue. And look what it says here in verse five. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Then you will understand the fear of God. Whatever it is in one to four, if I do that, then I will understand the fear of the Lord. That is very comforting. Well, that's not all. That's not all. You will also discover the knowledge of God. You'll also discover the knowledge of God. Really earnestly understand the knowledge of God. There's a great book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's great. I think he hits so many great things. You could read that book and not know God. Because it doesn't say anywhere in the scriptures that if you read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, then you'll discover the knowledge of God. 
It might help. It might be a strategy. But whatever it says in the first four verses results in me understanding the knowledge of God, to truly know him. I appreciate Edward Willis's prayer request, if you get those prayer packets, and you should. It said, pray that as I study the Bible, that I would understand God's character and know him, not just more data about him. And that's what's being talked about here. Not more data, but a true understanding of the knowledge of God, a true understanding of him. So the fear of God and the knowledge of God, they go hand on hand. They, they, they feed on each other. And the rest of what we're going to look at builds off of this. It builds off of verse 5. You can't skip verse 5. You've got to go through it. And when you know God, like it says in verse 5, it brings you into contact with some pretty, pretty neat stuff. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Well, now it starts to get even sweeter. So you get the fear of God, you get the knowledge of God, and you find out that the person that you're getting to know and getting intimate with, he he has all the wisdom. He has it all. And I want to make this point because at the end of today, I'm going to to call you from this text to do stuff, but I, I don't want you to forget that it's God that gives the wisdom. He's the one that delivers it. He has it all. He is the well of wisdom and he gives it out. It's grace from him. And how does he do that? How does he deliver that wisdom? Well, look at your text. It tells you right there. Verse 6, from his mouth. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And you know what? We have his mouth right here. These are the words from his mouth given to us. And from his mouth, from, his, from what we have in the word in the Bible, come knowledge and understanding. They don't come from experience alone. A lot of times I think we lean too heavy that way and say, it's experience. Well, I know, and I'm sure so do you. I know old people who are fools. They've lived their whole lives and had lots of experiences, and they are absolute fools. And I know young people who are wise. Now, the ultimate is to be the old person who's built their life experience off of verse 5. That's what we call a sage. But it's the building off of verse 5. It's the, it's the going to God. It's the wisdom from him that truly defines what kind of wise people we want to be. It's not experience alone. It's, it's his knowledge and his understanding which he gives through his word. Well, not only is God the well of wisdom, he's also, in verse 7, the securer of success. It says there in verse 7, he stores up sound wisdom. Sound wisdom is a neat word. It it means success and a good result. Have you ever met a person who just seems to get it? They just know how things work. They They touch stuff and it's just successful and it just goes. And they seem to just really get it. Well, this is the idea of success. But what he also does in this verse which I, I think is, is, is uh, I appreciate so much because it ties in just right, is he ties the sound wisdom to the person whose character is upright. There is, there is a worldly wise person. There is a successful person. There is a businessman who can walk into the situation and they know how to work with money. 
and they know how things work and they start working their, their business, you know, expertise and things go and they make a bunch of profit and they do well. And we'd say, oh, they're so successful. That must be from the Lord. No, not if their character's not upright. We would know right off that that's not true success. Or it's the con artist who can sell anything, right? Can walk into a situation, doesn't matter what they're selling, doesn't matter who you are, they can sell you on it because they know how things work and they're wise and yet they could be conniving and lying through their teeth and that's not success even though they might make a good sale. Or it could be the great orator who can capture the attention of thousands and you think that person, they've got it. But if their character is not upright, they don't have the sound wisdom that comes from God. Because that's for the upright. And what we start to see here is that out of the fear of God, out of the knowledge of God, comes this wisdom and understanding tied in with a character. A character that's upright. As we keep reading, it's a character that has integrity. Verse 7. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. The path of justice preserves the way of his godly ones. This is a character. There's a certain character tied in here. And we see here in 7 and verse 8 that, that God is the guardian of the godly. He's the guardian of the people who have this kind of character. Those who walk in integrity, whose ways are innocent, who are wholly committed and, and submissive to God. Those who deal even-handedly with people at all times. Those who we would call godly. And what you find is that out of the fear of God and the knowledge of God, these character traits become yours, tied in with the wisdom that God has for you. And verses 9 to 11 really make this clear. Look there. Verses 9 to 11, there's going to be some tremendous intellectual gains, but there's also going to be some uh, even better moral gains for this person. Then we got our then statement again. Reiterated, then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. Wisdom will enter your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. I mean, this is great. You gain knowledge, discretion, understanding. But not only that, you get righteousness and justice and equity or fairness. You know how to make the right choices. You take the right actions. You know what to do, how to do it. When's the best time to do it? You are truly becoming wise. I read a, a really great biography on, on Oswald Chambers a few weeks ago. And Oswald Chambers, he's the guy who's, who's quoted in uh, My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers, he seemed to just understand this he seemed to be the type of guy that understood every good course. I mean, when you think about that, every good course, don't you want it? Chambers wanted it, and he seemed to have it. There's a story about Oswald Chambers where he's spending his life, and he's growing in the Lord, and, and he's becoming this kind of international speaker, and he's, he's jumping around. But what he really wants to do, the course that he really wants to take in his life is first he wants to marry this, this girl that he's met. And then he wants to go set up this Bible college. Well, it takes him about a year and a half to marry this girl 
because his course of life just kept taking him to different places and he was just ready to serve the Lord here and there and it just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. They were just waiting for a time when he was free so they could get married and finally it happens. And then God opens the doors for this Bible college and it's a Bible college where he doesn't want to just simply do classes. He wants to bring people into his home and and disciple them and, and have them as if they were family. He's got this dream of doing that. And so that starts to fall into place. And somebody gives him this huge mansion of a place. So he houses these 25 students and they start to do this Bible college and it just takes off. The thing is just completely successful and provided for. And you think, good, he's got it. This guy really knew the course and he's on it. Well, and then World War I comes. And all of a sudden his, he starts to, to change course in his heart. And he thinks, I think I need to be helping out with the war some way. So he's got this college and it's been this dream of his and his wife's and it's been going, it's going great. Things are really rolling. And he just decides by the the leading of the spirit, I'm going to join up with YMCA and I'm going to go help the troops in Egypt. And so he does. Bails on the college, goes to Egypt and it just flourishes. It just booms. His ministry there, people are just getting saved in droves. And being taught and discipled. And then he moves from one place to the next. And he just keeps getting moved around. And every place he goes, it just explodes. And you just think, man, how does he know this? He just understood every good course. He just understood what God had for him. He just went willingly. And God just blessed it. And it's rich. And he seemed to get it. He seemed to truly understand what the right course for his life was. And it wasn't just an outward veneer of wisdom. It's not the fast talker who makes you think they've got their act together. It's a deeper wisdom. It's a wisdom that guards the heart. It's pleasant to the soul. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? Wouldn't you love just to know what's the course of my life? Where am I supposed to go? Well, it says here, that's what you get. That's what you get. We live in a world that's filled with sin all around. And, and we can't escape this world. I think we do well to set up guards in our lives. I think that that's wise. I think the Bible tells us to do that. But we can't escape this world, and we're not supposed to leave this world. We're supposed to be in it, sharing the gospel in it. And... And so we can't escape this world. So, so our guard gets attacked by the things around us, by the sins around us. And, and yet, look at the kind of guard that God sets up. He sets up a shield to those who walk in integrity. He sets up um, a guardian over the heart. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. It's, it's at the heart level. It's at the soul level. It's... It's not merely an outward external guard. It's your heart being guarded. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, this person walks wisely. In their head and in their heart, there's wisdom. In their character and their actions exude wisdom. They walk wisely. And and isn't that what we want? Don't we want to live that way? Don't we want this to be us? To have that? Well, we can't start at verse 9. As sweet as these things are, 
verses 9 to 11 build off of verses 5 to 8. You can't skip over God to get there. We'd like to. I know I'd like to. Many times in my life, where I, and still, where I just think, God, can, can you just fast track me? Can you just kind of get me to the answers and just help me get the good course part and, and the wisdom in my heart and with that? Do I really have to go through verses five to eight? Can I just kind of skip over that? I know that that's what I realized at that pastor's retreat, that for much of my life, my Christian life, I had just been skipping over God and fearing God and trying to get character or trying to get wisdom or trying to figure things out. And I was just going right over verses five to eight and God. And I learned that there's no shortcut to godliness. There's no shortcut to godliness. And this is where we really test our want. Verses nine to 11 look really good. Do you want to be that person? Do you want to be that sage? Well, we're going to see. We're going to see if you really do or not. Let's look back at our outline. Okay, if you do, verses 1 to 4, whatever that is going to be, if you do that, then you will fear and know God. It starts there. That's the foundation. You will fear and know God. Out of that fearing and knowledge of God, you will walk wisely, which is intellectual and moral. It's, it's outward wisdom. It's also the inward heart guarding. And out of that, out of that walking in wisdom... With that foundation laid, you will be delivered from the pervert. Look at verse 12. The perverted man. You will be delivered from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. The perverted man is the man who turns away from the natural course, who distorts morality. You ever met this guy? He's devious and crooked. He sells you cheap joy, but promises contentment. He calls right wrong and wrong right. He makes a living off of perversion. Have you ever met him? Probably you have, whether you wanted to or not. Some of you may have ran into him accidentally, but took him in as a close companion. Some of you may have gone looking for him. He's not hard to find. There are entire industries in our world in our society with tons of employees and they do nothing but what's described here they do nothing but speak perverse things abandon the paths of uprightness for the ways of darkness delight in doing evil and subsist on devious ways the industry that came to my mind first and foremost where i think the perverted man has his way was the pornography industry some $57 billion strong. The perverted man has his way. Have you ever met him? Probably. He's around almost every corner. He's on almost every channel. How can you escape this guy? How can you escape him? He's so powerful. Well, maybe we'll isolate ourselves from the world. That'll work. Nope, it's not the solution. Maybe we'll be in the world, but we'll just blindfold ourselves and trip around, and that way we don't ever have to come in contact with him. That's not going to work either. 
Proverbs 2 is how you escape the perverted man. The man who speaks perverse things. The man who delivers crookedness. Proverbs 2 is how you do it. Or maybe you've ran into the foreign woman. Look at verse 16. The adulteress. The statistics say that by age 40, 50 to 65% of husbands and 45 to 55% of wives have had an extramarital affair. Adultery. That's not even taking into consideration adultery on the grounds of unbiblical divorce. We live in a world filled with adultery. And the adulterous woman back in 1000 BC when this was written, it was a woman who because of her immorality was outside the circle of her proper relations. You can read about her in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 23. This was a woman who wanted other men instead of her husband. And the covenant here in verse 17 was the marriage covenant that they made before God. When you mess around with this woman, there's cause for great disaster. It says that her house sinks down to death. Picture the quicksand just sinking down into death. It says that her tracks lead to the dead. One commentator put it this way. Those who enter the house of the immoral woman find only the ghosts of those who preceded them and discover too late that there is no exit. You ever dealt with this woman? What a deadly combination are these two tempters. What a deadly combination. The pervert in verses 12 to 15, the adulteress in verses 16 to 19. What a devastating combo. And some of you are in tight with these people. You are playing with fire on your TVs or your computers or with your coworkers. And you may come to that point, and I hope that you do, where you feel guilty. You feel guilty looking at the empty images on the computer screen, pasted there by the perverse man. You feel guilty about giving in to his deceptions and believing the lie that he tells. You feel guilty playing the adulteress with others, inviting the wrong kind of attention by the way you dress or the way you act. And, and you feel guilty, and you'd like to change. And you want it all to end and you want to stop being overcome by these two tempters. But you just can't seem to do it. Well, the deliverance is there for you. It's there for you. But it didn't start in verse 16. And it didn't start in verse 12. It builds off of verses 5 to 11. It builds off of those people who fear and know God. And fearing and knowing God are the result of the first four verses. There's no shortcut. We'd like to take a shortcut. We would. We'd, we recognize that there's a problem. Maybe it's a problem with the perverse man or the adulterous woman, and we'd like to be done with it. So sh- show me the shortcut. Give me the the quick solution. Show me the easy way and I'll do it. What book do I read? What what, what, what do I do? And there is no shortcut to godliness. It goes through the fear of God and the knowledge of God. 
So let me put on the salesman hat again here and just summarize all that you get here in verses 5 to 19. All that you receive from doing the first four verses, you get the fear of God, the knowledge of God. You get wisdom, knowledge, understanding, sound wisdom, success. You get a shield, you get a guarding, you get a preserving. You understand righteousness, justice, equality, I mean, sorry, equity in every good course. Wisdom enters your heart. Knowledge is pleasant to your soul. You're guarded by discretion. You're watched over by understanding. And you even get deliverance from the perverted man and the adulterous woman. That's a pretty sweet package. That's pretty good. That's a treasure right there. To have all of that. And the blessing only culminates in the closing verses. Look at verse 20. We get a kind of broad, general culmination here of, of all these wonderful blessings. Verse 20 says, So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. For the Jew, this was God's blessing to live in the land. God had chosen the Jews out of nothing. And taken them from slavery and given them the land and blessed them and paved the way for them. And to be in the land meant you were under God's blessing. You enjoyed God's favor. And when you sinned, you were booted. You remember Adam and Eve, they sinned and they were booted from the garden. Remember Cain? Cain killed Abel and it says he was kicked out. The Jews would eventually come to that same place where they would sin and sin and sin against God and God would kick them out of the land. So to be in the land was to be under God's blessing. And, and what's so classic in Proverbs is that comparison. God's, God's favor, God's wrath. And you see it here in verse 22. But the wicked, the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Well, the effect of verses 5 to 22 are just a big, fat, listen up. Listen up. God, through his spokesman Solomon, has stacked the deck. There is so much to be had here. I mean, just think about all that's to be had here. Think about truly understanding, fearing God. Truly knowing him, really knowing him, not just about him knowing every good course to take in life. Think about making all the best decisions. Think about deliverance from those two tempters. Just try to get your mind around that. Do you want all that? Does that sound good? Do you want that? No. No. The, the obvious answer is no. Because what we're going to see in verses 1 to 4 is when you really want it, you get it. When you really want it is when you get it. Look back at verses 1 to 4. This is the foundation of the whole chapter. Everything in verses 5 to 21 build off of verses 1 to 4. 
It's a big if-then statement, and you don't get the then unless you fulfill the condition of the if. So we got to figure out, if you, what? What needs to go in there for us to get verses 5 to 21 and avoid verse verse 22? I'm going to read the first four verses to you, and I'm going to throw in a few ifs because it really is one big if statement. It says this, My son, if you will receive my words... If you will treasure my commandments within you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you incline your heart to understanding, if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, if you search for her as for hidden treasures, then, then you get verses 5 to 21. Well, the first one is if you receive or listen. If you receive, if you're accepting, this is opposite of someone who knows it all. This is not the one way road person. They are, they are taking in, they are accepting. They are making their ear attentive. Catch the picture here that Solomon's drawing for us of that ear just kind of pointed up. Yes. What is it? That wanting to listen. And what are they listening to? What are they receiving? Well, it tells us right there. They're receiving my words and my commandments. And here it's not just Solomon's nice saying. It's the statements that have been endorsed by God himself. God's words, God's commandments. Remember verse 6. From God's mouth come all knowledge and understanding. So they're, they're listening for God's word and, and God's commandments. That's what's important. And they're not merely a good listener. They're, they're a good listener to God's words. My question for you is, do you listen to God's words? Do you listen to his commandments? I didn't say, do you read them? But do you listen to them? Do you receive them? When you do read the Bible, are you listening or just checking a task off the list? Or do you read the Bible? Let's bump it up another notch. That's what the text does. This is not even merely a good listener to God's word. But somebody who, catch the word, treasures the commandments. That's a want word, treasure. What do you treasure in life? What do you treasure in life? You guys know what the right answer is. But what do you really treasure in life? I work with the high schoolers. And a lot of our high schoolers have grown up in in the church. And they've grown up with good teaching. The parents have taught them and, and they know the right answers. A lot of them do. And I ask them questions like this and they always give me the right canned answer. It's usually God, Jesus, or the Bible or something like that. And they know how to answer that way. And I always challenge them. I say, no, no, don't tell me what the answer is. Tell me what your life says the answer is. That's what really counts. And we have to stop here and think and say, does my life give the answer that I want it to give? Does my life do it? If you told me I treasure my kids, my children, I treasure them. They are precious to me. They are valuable to me. And I said, oh, really? So how much time do you spend with them? Oh, about five, ten minutes a day. I really treasure them. But I tell you, don't. Your life says exactly the opposite. You don't treasure your kids. It doesn't matter what you're telling me. It's what your life says about you. And that's the question is, is what do you treasure in life? Do you treasure 
God's words, his commandments? Do you incline your heart to it? What do you want? Verse 3 adds to that. Do you cry for discernment? Do you call out for understanding? Do you ask God for these things? The same time I was going through my struggle with the fear of God and and trying to figure out what it is. And I remember being up at my father-in-law's house in Moscow, Idaho. And I was sharing with him my, just my frustrations and my struggles. I said, I just, you know, I can't get my hands around. I can't figure out what this fear of God is. And, And he stopped me. I still remember he stopped me. And he said, son, have you asked God to show you what the fear of God is? Because he knows. And it was like, no, I haven't. And ding, I mean, it just, I hadn't even cried out to God, called out upon God to know what the fear of God is. He knows. And here, this is exactly what he wants us to do is to cry out, to call out, to pray. So in the first couple verses, our our eyes are, are beholding the words and the commandments. And our ears, we're making our ears attentive. And here, our mouths are voicing prayers to God and desires. And in verse 4, it climaxes with the entire body. Verse 4, if you seek her as silver, the her there being the understanding, the wisdom that's wrapped up. In the knowledge of God, if you seek her as silver, if you search for her as for hidden treasure. The word search there conveys the idea of digging, digging for treasure. I dug a hole once. It was a big hole. Um, in fact, it wasn't me alone. My, my cousins and I thought it would be real fun one day. I was in probably junior high. Um, I thought it'd be really funny to go out on my grandma's place and dig a hole. Okay, she lives on 10 acres, a lot of sand, Christmas tree farm that my great uncle had set up there. And and so we started digging this hole. And we dug all day long. We took shifts, we were getting energy drinks, we were just digging and digging and digging. Okay, and by the time we were done with this hole, we had quite a hole for a couple of shovels and a couple young kids. The hole was about four feet in diameter. And went down about 10 feet. This giant hole. And we thought, this is awesome. We dug a hole. <laughs> Look at that thing. And uh, our tone changed the next morning when my great uncle almost drove his tractor into it. And we filled up that hole in about 10 minutes. And I learned something important that day. I learned that it's easier to fill in holes than to dig them. It's easier to fill in holes than to dig them. But you don't find treasure by filling in holes. It's easier to to kick your feet up and flip on the tube, but you don't find treasure that way. It's easier to turn off the alarm and sleep in, but you don't find treasure that way. It's easier to ignore your kids than to take them to the back room every 10 minutes. But you don't find treasure that way. It's easier just to show up to church on Sunday mornings and not serve. It's easier to do that. But you don't find any treasure that way. 
It's easier to get your instant pleasure off the computer screen. But you don't find treasure that way. It's easier to visit an adulteress or be one than it is to work on your marriage. But you don't find treasure that way. You have to dig for treasure. But at the end, guess what? You have treasure. And when you don't dig, guess what you have at the end? Nothing. Nothing. I asked my high schoolers a while back, how many of you wanted to uh, get to the end of your life and have nothing? Not one hand. But you have to dig. You have to search. It's hard work. And it's the only way. There's no shortcut to godliness. There's no quick fix. In and out won't work here. Internet order, next day delivery is not going to happen. You don't drive off, off the lot today with this car. You don't get to verse 5 without going through verses 1 to 4. Without seeking and searching and treasuring and crying out and wanting. So we turn our question to God and we say, God, what do you want? What do you want? He wants us to want him. He could have done this thing any way he wanted. He could have given us sanctification the moment we got saved. He could have given us instant deliverance. He didn't. Because in his perfect plan, he wants us to want him. And if we don't want him, we don't get anything on that list. But when we do want him, we get the whole thing. So what do you want? What do you want? When you've treasured God in his scripture through prayer and earnest desire, and you have an understanding of the fear and knowledge of God, and are thus filled with wisdom, which naturally results in right living, then you are guarded from the temptations of the pervert and the temptations of the adulteress, and you will enjoy God's favor and avoid his wrath. But catch where it starts. God does not want to be another task box on your calendar. He wants to be the greatest pursuit of your life. Knowing him, understanding him, fearing him, seeking him out, his wisdom needs to be the greatest treasure of your life. And if you don't, then you get cut off from the land. That's Proverbs 2. So what do you do with this? A couple things. What do you do with this? First, address the problem. Let this be a wake-up call. Let chapter 2 work as a wake-up call. It kind of works backwards in a way. If you don't see verses 5 to 21 in your life, if you don't see the deliverance happening, if you don't see the wisdom and, and the discernment and the righteousness and the justice and the fear of God and the knowledge of God in your life, if you're not seeing that, then something's going wrong in verses 1 to 4. Something's going wrong with your want. And so you need to address that problem. You can look at your schedule usually and see what's going on. How much time do you spend in prayer? A lot of people, when I, when I ask them that, they, they say, oh, prayer is going pretty good. I don't read much. I don't go to church. I'm not real involved in church, but pray, I pray a lot. I say, really? That's surprising because um, the person who prays a lot looks like verses 5 to 21. The person who really has it down in prayer. And maybe you need to look at your prayer life and say, what's going on? How's your corporate prayer? How's your family prayer? How much time do you spend enjoying God's Bible? 
enjoying it, receiving it, eager for it, listening for it? How much time do you spend struggling with your sin and weakness? Or is it just more of a give-in thing and an accepted part of your life? How much time crying out and then listening and looking for the answer? Address the problem. Let Proverbs 2 soak into your heart and pin you down on those areas that need to be addressed. Secondly, aim in the right direction. Sometimes we get a lot of zeal and a lot of passion and we we take all that zeal and passion in the wrong direction. And we're not even aimed at the right things, but we're passionate about it. And it doesn't surprise me. Satan is such a deceiver. Your own sin is so deceiving. And I think that um, many times we, our zeal, we end up going in the wrong direction or just slightly off. Which is what the enemy would love. Verses 1 to 4 should set you in the right direction. You think about how you think. If you are aiming for a quick fix, that is the wrong direction. It will never happen. If you're living your Christian life, hoping to find that right little connection where then everything's taken care of. Maybe it's this book. Maybe it's this Bible study that's going to fix it. Maybe it's this accountability person. And looking for the quick fix. You're aiming in the wrong direction. Books, counselors, Bible studies might all be helpful. But don't aim at them as a quick fix. If you, if you think that this is going to be something easy... And you look at Christianity, it's just a Sunday morning kind of easy thing that I keep in my life. It's the wrong direction. You're never going to get verses 5 to 21. You're not even aimed in the right way. You may think that merely plugging away at a, a 10-minute quiet time is the goal. It's not. It's not the goal. Quiet times, devotions, or strategies to help you toward the goal, but they are not the goal. And checking them off a list does nothing for you. If you don't want God, nothing. If you've got 10 minutes in the morning, then make it 10 minutes of desire. Aim for that. Say, I want 10 minutes of desire. I want 10 minutes of want and passion. I don't want a task box. Get aimed in the right direction. Let verses one to four aim you in the direction of want. So with this passage, you need to address the problem. You need to aim in the right direction and then start walking. Just start going. Just get into the word. Start seeking it out. Start searching it out. Yes, it's going to require some sacrifice on your part to not do other things in order to fulfill these things. But digging is not easy. And it takes time and it's hard. But just start doing it. And then remember verse six is as you're going hard after this and as you're working at it and you're pouring yourself into this, remember that verse six says the Lord gives wisdom and remember that it's all his grace on you, but work hard, go after it. But the final application is probably the most important one trumps all the others. Get right with Jesus. I would be remiss to talk about wisdom without talking about the embodiment of wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. And if you're not right with Jesus, nothing happens for you in chapter two. Nothing. 
You can't make any headway on wisdom if you've made the dumbest choice of all time and rejected Jesus. Jesus gave his life for you. If you have to put a picture next to wisdom, it's Jesus on a cross. It says in 1 Corinthians 1 that we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. That's how God displayed his wisdom most clearly in the cross of Christ. And if you don't have Christ, if you haven't embraced what he's done on the cross and in his resurrection as the only means by which you ever be right with God and truly surrendered your life and repented and said, Jesus, I'm yours. If you haven't done that, none of this happens. You can forget about it. The first thing is you must get right with Jesus. Well, I feel like a salesman still. Here, I've sweetened the deal. I've told you you can have the fear of God, the knowledge of God, the discernment, the justice, the righteousness. We'll even throw in sound wisdom, preserving you in every good course. You'll know that. And, and, and for a limited time of about 70 years or maybe 80, we'll throw in deliverance from the perverted man and the adulterous woman. Take advantage today. This offer may not be good tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is when deliverance begins. As Ryle put it, tomorrow is the devil's day. Perhaps today you need to start with Jesus. Maybe that's where you need to start. Get things right with him. Or perhaps today you need to start with a humble apology to your God and beg him to change your wants to change your desires. And I want to end just by talking with the men. Men, we need to step up. The men need to step up. God has put men as leaders in churches and leaders in families. He's given that role to men. And we need to step up. So often we put passion and want and desire. There's like feminine things. We're tough. We don't show any emotion. Men, That is far from the truth. We need to step up and embrace what God wants for his people. And we need to lead in our want and lead in our desire and lead in our passion, not follow along. And when we do, we get chapter two. We fear and we know God. Let's pray. God, apart from you, none of this happens. You're the giver of wisdom. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the effect that it had on my own life and still has on my life. God, I pray that you would use it in a mighty way to affect your people. I pray that your spirit would go forth with your word and change hearts, change my own heart, Lord, and make me desire you and Make these people desire you and make us as a a group of Calvary, especially the men. God, help us to step up and desire you. And at lunch today, God, let it be a lunchtime filled with desire for you. Let us do this today and not wait. In your name, amen.